Amen. Thank you, Bill. A couple of scriptures to read that will cover the theme of my sermon today. First is from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. It reminds us that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses because the builder has more honor than the house. Verse 4, now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. And Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor over it in vain. Several events in my life recently have all had something to do with homes and building things. I mean, besides the housing market going way up and then starting to come down and all the new homes being built north, south, east, and west, maybe you've seen them. Now, the first event is that I built a shelf. No, 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 please, save your applause. It wasn't that good. But it's an improvement to our home's organization. It allows us to use new storage space and put other things where we use them instead of where they have just had to be because they fit or because we were in a hurry. That ever happened to you? When you can't change things, you make do with what you have. But when you can change them, ooh, look out. You might find many other ideas waiting to be used too. It's one of the things my wife and I have come to love about our home. It came with lots of ideas. We haven't begun to see the end of them yet either. <laughs> also, with the war in Ukraine and with the pullout in Afghanistan, many people from other countries are calling our neighborhoods home for the first time. Our missionaries, groups like Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors, highlight those who leave their comfortable, peaceful homes for the cause of Christ and choose to call very doubtful and dangerous places home instead. And our own USA can be both kinds, can't it? The third event is that I noticed a new neighborhood being built in Skyatook with a terrific name. Now, some neighborhood names seem kind of pretentious, like Diamond Estates. Ooh. In the gated community. Or some of them have names that are just overdone, like Golf Palm Villa Hills West 2. And some are just nonsensical, like Valley Ridge. Or Shady Acres, but no trees. But this one was so appropriate. On a flat stretch of land near the road, they are building straight streets and identical houses on terrain with no tilt whatsoever. <laughs> they call it level acres. <laughs> and boy, is it level. Hmm. <laughs> and the last event is that we have some relatives who have had some very bad struggles with homes until recently. They are at last in a warm, dry, safe place with working water and no pests. They had a terrible time in their previous rental with animal inhabitants and a delinquent landlord and systems that just didn't work. They finally left when the kitchen became unusable and the whole house smelled terrible. Now they're becoming more settled and content. 
enjoying the home that fits them. Some homes are built well. Others are built terribly. We've probably all had both kinds, haven't we? Some of you are, are remembering them right now. God in his wisdom and mercy allows us to know both blessings and sufferings, even in our homes, where we are sometimes most vulnerable. So, looking in the Bible, I found it is full of references to homes and to building. And I find that many of them showcase our father as a master builder and a provider of a home for his people. Genesis 1, Garden of Eden. Every need provided for, every weakness protected, no pressures, no harassment, no baggage. What a great place. No homeowners association, no building codes, no traffic, no pollution. This is the heart of our Father for us. This is what he made for us to enjoy. Good to remember that. We were given a challenge to subdue the earth and fill it. What a great challenge to have in a paradise. I think perhaps God wanted Adam and Eve to know this paradise in all of its glory even though he knew that his enemy was setting out to ruin it. I think he wanted them to know it and be disappointed and be frustrated so that they would pass on to their children that understanding that God makes good things. And in feeling the, the wrongness of the ruining of it, that hopefully we would look for the truth behind it and find it. Because that's what this life's all about, isn't it? About recognizing the truth, about seeing that this world was good and is fallen. It is not what it should be. All of us have that sense. Every culture, across time, we all know something's wrong. We all know it's not what it's supposed to be. Where did we get the supposed to be? We got it from God. Following along in the book of Genesis, we see God making a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promised land, a home, a safe haven, a place of rightful ownership and authority. And God made sure his people knew over and over that he wasn't going to forget even though Abraham got to be in it for a while, he had to leave for a while. Even though Isaac was in it, other people contested him for it, and he decided, you know, God can make it work. I don't need to be fighting people for what's already mine. So Isaac backed off over and over again, and eventually everybody came to recognize that it did belong to Isaac and that Isaac was worth having as a friend. Jacob, too, even though the whole land was in famine for seven years. And he had to end up leaving it. They all knew that they were where God intended for them and their people to be. Even in Egypt, even when they had to go to a foreign land, God made a home for them there, the land of Goshen, 
another safe haven, a place to grow and multiply. There were 70 of them when they went. There were millions when they came back. That was on purpose. God gave them a place that turned out to be not just a place for them, but a place he would use as a tool to bring glory to himself with a powerful show of force and purpose. A witness not just to them and not just to the Egyptians, but to the whole world. And then through Exodus and the book of Joshua, we see the return to the promised land, their home under Moses and Joshua, a place of comfort and pleasure that flows with milk and honey, a place with grapes, big, big grapes, if you read the description, a place where they can not just grow, but keep growing, developing in culture and industry, a place to retell the grand stories of rescue, the stack of the 12 stones next to the Jordan. Father, what are those for? Tell your children. Tell them. Help them remember. A place to build traditions of worship and customs of a godly society, the tabernacle, the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant. Home was given by God and distributed to every family to be maintained indefinitely as long as God was God. Of course, we know that we are not real good at maintaining our homes, are we? <laughs> Show of hands, who has ever had to hire someone else to fix something in your home? Oh, yeah. Most of us need help with that from time to time. The Israelites needed a lot of help with their home. We see through the book of Judges, the cycle of apostasy, where God comes and rescues them, gives them a deliverer, they worship him for a while, then they fall away and worship idols. They cry out to God, he rescues them, and it starts again. But after tumultuous apostasy and multiple judges, in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, we see the Israelites return to a peaceful kingdom under David and Solomon. A place to be proud of, right? A place feared by enemies around place to belong to and build a heritage, a place, place of worship and glory. Solomon's temple, one of the wonders of the world. And God promised Solomon that he would be known far and wide, not just for his wisdom, but for other things that mattered to other people too. This is a good place to be, good home, good place to call home. And then it turns pretty bad after that. So bad, in fact, that if you read the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and parts of Ezekiel, even in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, you see that the destruction of it is incredibly thorough. God's really ticked. And he's put up with it for a long time. You read how thoroughly Josiah tried to reform the country, and God says it's not enough. You read in Ezekiel, God says that if Moses and Daniel and who was the other one? Job. 
Moses, Daniel, and if, even if they were in the land, they would save only themselves by their righteousness. The land is so bad. That's bad. I mean, that's really wicked. God goes to great lengths through his prophets to explain this to his people. To, not that he needs to, but to justify all the incredible destruction that he's sending upon them. It's like if you went and burned down your own home. You'd have to really be upset to do that. God really was. And yet, as hot as his anger burned, as thorough as the destruction was, as few people survived, there was always the promise to return one day. There was always a remnant. And eventually, under Cyrus of Persia with Ezra and Nehemiah, the remnant returned. And what do they do? They rebuild. Home was a place your family had built and that you had rebuilt with your own hands while holding a sword to defend it. That means something. You build a home like that and it matters. <coughs> it was a place to worship again in the traditions handed down by God himself. It was a place of renewal, a place of restoration, a place of declaring to all the world that God fulfilled his promises in spite of our sins and suffering. And even before they got to come back, for 70 years in exile in Babylon and Persia, through Daniel and Ezekiel, God still was at work. It was a different kind of home there. It was a place for mourning, for sins and the suffering they caused, a place of humiliation and regret, a place of repentance. But it was also still a place to grow and to remember the truth, a place to hold on to what was good. It was almost lost in those evil years. It was a place to see God still working miracles on his people's behalf. A place to be reminded that God still remembered his promises. So clearly, unmistakably, the concept of home is one that God wants us to understand in a particular way. And that's just the Old Testament. Even after the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and finally the Romans all invaded the promised land, Israel's home, God responded by sending his son to invade the place evil called home and redeem it. Jesus himself had much to say about homes, though he did not have one himself. Remember that? Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was the one who said, I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. In one of his parables, he says, Come, you for whom this place was prepared from the foundation of the world. 
in the parable of the serpents with talents, he said, enter into the joy of your Lord. It was important, that place that was prepared. The preparing of it was important because the people were important to God. Always have been. Always have been. Jesus often graced the homes of others. They were of many different kinds, I'm sure. He seemed equally at ease with the humble, with the poor, as he was with the tax collectors, the rich people. He didn't seem even particularly bothered when homes got destroyed right in front of him. Remember the, the man who was lowered down by his friends from, from the roof? Wish I could have seen Jesus' face. In every situation, he seems like the only one who's not really surprised by anything. Doesn't phase him, doesn't distract him. He's like, sure, bring him down. And then he heals him because of the faith of his friends. Isn't that great? What a thing to have happen in your home. Jesus told a parable of wise and foolish builders. He told a parable of a homeowner who didn't know when the thief was coming. He told Peter that he would have an important role in the building of his church. And I'm sure at the time, Peter had no idea what that meant. And even though our true home is not here, the church is meant to be where we find its beginnings the flawed human version of it in Christ's body here on earth. So then the church begins with the 12 apostles. And in the book of Acts, we see the church as a place for all the gifts of the Spirit to be in operation. A place for people from all over the world. A place where all can minister and all are valued. A place for counsel, for healing, for strengthening and depending. A place for finding hope for Christ's return, eternal life after death, and the new creation. And then in the epistles, 1 Corinthians, the interpretation of the tongues is said to be specifically for the building up of the church. Ephesians calls the apostles and prophets part of the foundation on which God's household is built with Jesus himself as the cornerstone, built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. In Colossians, we are to walk in Christ and be built up in him. In 1 Peter 2, we are called living stones, the building blocks of a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. A lot of the same terms and pictures from the Old Testament but not with the same materials. As if the Old Testament was just a way to give us a picture so that we would begin to understand what God always truly meant, that we are to be the temple, the place where he dwells. And then the book of Revelation. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, built and ready as a husband prepares for his bride. Imagine 
how you would feel if you walked into a house built just for you by someone who loved you extravagantly. The surprise, the overflowing joy, the squeals of delight, the details that would reveal how truly known you are. Extreme home makeover has nothing on what God has prepared for those who love Him. So these are not all, but a lot of the references to homes and building through the Bible. From these, it seems clear that home means something to our Father. It's important. He goes to great lengths to make sure we understand it. He wants home to mean something to us, too. In fact, I believe he wants home to mean these three things. Number one, home means protection. In the parable, the wise man built upon the rock. You can probably all do the motions. The foolish man built on the sand. And both of them get hammered by life. It's not like either of them gets a free pass. It's not like there was a good place to build and a bad place to build in terms of the weather. The rains came down and the floods came up and neither home was spared any harsh force by the storms of life. We have wasps at our house. We have snakes occasionally. Some people have other problems. Some people have flooding. Oh wait, we have that too, don't we? Yeah. Some people have earthquakes. Some people have war. Every home's got something. Every home gets hammered by the rains of life. Now, it was hard on both of them, but it was not equally hard for both of them. A house still standing after a storm may need some work, some cleanup, but having no house at all is infinitely harder. I remember almost four years ago now when five and a half feet of water came through our yard in May and after 11 days we could live in the house again. We got rescued by the swamp boat that the fire department had and after two days of people in this church coming and wiping mud off of everything we owned and spraying out our basement and cleaning off our shoes several times a day we could live in our house again. It took about, I don't know, three or four weeks, but, but we, were, we were almost back to normal. We were able to, to live again. But that's because we had an entire bottom floor built entirely out of concrete and rock. When water comes through there, it leaves mud behind, but it doesn't really damage stuff, you know? We didn't have anything broken. We didn't have anything... Uh, that had to be replaced. Even our electrical system in the basement still worked. My riding mower floated in its shed in the back. I've never seen a riding mower float, but this one did. It floated, and Jerry was able to get it running again. I had two power tools that got left in the basement, and they got immersed, and both of them worked just fine. Praise the Lord, yeah. But we didn't really have a whole lot of work to do, relatively speaking, to get our 
first floor up and running again. But our neighbor didn't have a basement that her home was on top of. She was floating on her mattress in her house when she got rescued. And in the cleanup, she had to tear out everything from three feet high on the walls down, down to the studs. The house was gutted, just a shell. Sheetrock, carpet, subflooring, electrical, even some of the plumbing, you name it, she had to rip it out and start over. It's a mess. She didn't get to come back in to live in her house for months. And that's no fault of hers. But when you've got a house built on a rock, yeah, you'll have some damage here and there. You'll have to have some help. You'll have to have people come and wipe mud off of all your little sockets in your wrench set. And you'll be embarrassed by all the stuff you have. But it's a whole different story than someone who has to gut their house and start from scratch. That rock makes such a difference. Because you don't get to choose your storms. But you do get to choose your foundation. Homes are intended for our protection from the wind, the rain, ice, snow, hail, the sun, from robbers and vandals, from noises and disruptions, from wild beasts, from diseases from the lies of the enemy and from every whim of doctrine or philosophy tossed about in this world. Homes and churches are where we are supposed to get grounded, where we find the reminders of the truth, where we have our anchor. When they are invaded or infected or damaged or overwhelmed or taken away, we do not feel properly whole until we find another one. We were made for homes to mean protection because we have an enemy. We are warned in Titus 1 that whole households can be overthrown by lies. Second John warns us about who we welcome into our homes. In the church, we have the protection God intended, both from a wider pool of human experience than our own, and from the Holy Spirit. That is arranged on purpose. When a roaring lion seeks whom he may devour, he seeks out the stragglers, the loners, the ones outside the protection of the herd. So stay in the house, children. Stay close to the house. So, number one, homes are for protection. Number two, homes are a place for life, for growth, and for memories the place to grow a family. In 1 Timothy and in Titus, in qualifications for church leadership, order in the home is important because order in the home leads to order in the church, our spiritual home. At baptism, we are born into the body of Christ and we grow up in the church. It is a place for milestones to be marked on doorways for our extended family members to be remembered and honored. A place for pictures. A place for projects. For being quiet. And for making joyful noise. 
Homes are described as places for learning and teaching, places for believers to meet and for, and for breaking bread. And I love me a good church potluck. Mm-mm. You guys cook real well. Our father told the Israelites to mark their doors with reminders of the truth. To remind their children of what they had been through and who God is. Ceremonies and rituals were to help them remember the truth and their identity. And their homes were part of that. Women are even encouraged in the New Testament to be homemakers. That's Titus 2.5. Raising kids in the home matters. Homes matter because families matter, because what God made matters. So one, protection. Number two, growth, life, and memories. And number three, homes are a sign and a symbol of both the common and the unique. We use our homes to display our personalities, our preferences, our favorite sports teams, uh, and our outlook. Come election time, all you have to do is drive by somebody's yard. You can tell probably a couple things about them. But homes also reflect a regional standard of living. Our standard of living in this country is very different from a lot of places in the world. Anybody ever been down to, I think it's Waco or El Paso? I can't remember which one's right on the border with Mexico. Yeah. You stand in that town and you look like a mile away. You can see world of difference. It is not the same world. Homes also reflect the state of our government and culture. The homes in Ukraine, good example of this. Homes also reflect the safety factor of the neighborhood. We've all driven past homes that have lots of bars, lots of fences, lots of signs saying beware of dog, lots of security measures, guardhouses and such. Churches are much the same. Being connected to their local communities as landmarks, places to gather on holidays, places to celebrate weddings, births, funerals, baptisms and ordinations, all the important transitions of life. And our churches reflect their members, both what is held in common and what is special about each one. I'm going to tell you about a children's book that my mother read to me years ago. She still lives like the main character. The book is called The Big Orange Splot. And the picture on the cover is of the roof of a house with several orange splots on it and a can of orange paint held by the feet of a bird flying over. As the story goes, there was a neighborhood where all the houses looked the same. Everybody said, this is a neat street. But there was one man named Mr. Plumbean who was a little restless. And one day, no one knows why, a bird was carrying a bucket of orange paint and flew over his house and dropped it. Splot, all over the roof, 
All the neighbors said, oh, too bad. You'll have to redo the roof. Mr. Plumbing says, no. I got a different idea. And for several nights, he brings home truckloads of materials. And then does stuff. He puts a tower on his house. He doesn't stop at orange splots. He puts all kinds of splots all over the place. He draws pictures of elephants and steam shovels and pretty girls all over his house. Buys himself a pet alligator and plants funky trees in his front yard. Swings in a hammock, drinks lemonade. And all of his neighbors go, You've ruined our street! It's not neat anymore! They talk the neighbor of Plumbing into going over to try and convince him to take it all down and clean it up. So Plumbing says, yeah, come on over. And under the palm trees he's recently planted while the alligator's asleep, they drink lemonade and talk all night long. The next day the neighbor comes home with a truckload of stuff. <laughs> and in a couple days his house looks like a ship with a mast and portholes and anchors, and he's dressed like a captain in front of it. And the neighbors go, what is the matter with you? And he tells them what Plumbean told him. My house is me, and I am it. My house is where I like to be and looks like all my dreams. And as the story goes, one by one, they all come and visit Plumbean late at night and sip lemonade under the palm trees. And every next morning, they come home with a truckload of stuff. And as you turn the pages, you see one of them has redone his house like a Greek temple. One of them has done a medieval castle, complete with a moat. One of them has turned his into a hot air balloon with an extra large basket underneath. And at the end of the book, it says, whenever a stranger comes to this neighborhood and says, this is not a neat street, all the people say to the stranger, our houses are us, and we are them. Our homes are where we like to be and look like all our dreams. Now the story seems to emphasize each home's uniqueness but the book ends with them all holding in common the idea of being unique. In their separate expressions of personalities and preference, they became united in their rejection of uniformity. None of them tried to change the other. They appreciated their differences and shared a common perspective. Sounds a lot like the body of Christ to me. Ironically, physical homelessness is also characteristic of believers. If you read 1 Corinthians 4.11 and Hebrews 11.38, you'll see this mentioned. But all followers of Christ share the same spiritual homelessness that's described in Hebrews 11.13-16. These all died in faith without having received the promises. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. 
Now, those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. As Christ's brothers and sisters and servants of our Father, we have the best home that could ever be. It waits for us, unspoiled and perfect, and cannot be damaged, overwhelmed, or invaded. One of its purposes is to sustain us in hope while we struggle to live in these imperfect and corrupted and inadequate places that we call homes here on earth. Even the best homes and churches do not compare to any place that our Father has prepared for us later. And we need reminders of this as we get discouraged about life, about our temporary homes and their shortcomings, about the leaky this and the unpainted that, the pile of this. And not just about our homes, but about the longings in our deepest hearts that are just never quite satisfied. You leave us wondering why we have them and where they will ever find rest. So let us remember the answers in our discouraged moments and stir up one another in hope as we eagerly and expectantly look forward to the coming of the King and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the Lamb, our Savior, being a carpenter, knows a little about building. He knows exactly what He is doing as he builds us and builds you. No matter how many orange splots your roof might have, we are all part of his body, his temple, and God will live one day in all of us together. See you at the housewarming party. Mm.